0: should we trust the Bible? I've tried to see a span of things from the fact that our God is a God who speaks, who reveals Himself. He undertook that mysterious process we call inspiration, breathing out His Word into individuals who wrote as human beings, and yet what they wrote as human beings, weak sinners that they were, can be regarded as the Word of God. Last week we talked about inerrancy, a difficult concept for some to get their minds around. Today we're talking about another subject, the sufficiency of the Bible. And I have several more after this, a few weeks yet to go on this. I'm reading from two texts. First of all, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We did read this text earlier and looked at it for one aspect of this consideration. I'm making another emphasis from it today than we did at that time. 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 12. Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed And then another passage, which actually doesn't mention Scripture specifically, but it certainly borders upon what Scripture does. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We pray God would bless this His holy word as we consider its application to ourselves. I read not so long ago about two curious individuals. There are people like this in our society, of course, or once in a while they surface in the newspapers. This was a while ago. Homer and Langley Collier were the sons of a very successful New York physician. I believe the father would have lived about a century ago. Both men graduated from Columbia University, and their parents died in the 1920s. And they were left a brownstone mansion on Fifth Avenue in New York to live in and an ample supply of money from a, an estate that would supply their needs quite ably. Even though these men apparently were gifted and they were college graduates, actually Langley briefly had some appearances as a concert pianist at and once at Carnegie Hall. But they never apparently were gainfully employed, either of them, all of their lives. And increasingly, they became recluses living in their mansion in New York City, not venturing out most of the time. Homer almost never came out, and it was believed that he had become blind in middle age. But the mansion appeared to have its windows boarded up. The doors were triple-locked and uh, the whole exterior was neglected. Neighbors didn't see these two men, except that Langley, if you were observant, would go out at night after dark and sort of haunt the trash that people left at the curb and pull out key pieces that he thought were valuable and carry them home to be stored in the mansion. Well, this went on for a long time. People hardly knew whether that house was occupied, but it was, for a couple decades this way. And then in 1947, one day, neighbors complained of a serious odor coming from the house, and the police were called. The police had a hard time getting in, just entering. They had to rip boards off a window and break the window. The doors were impassable and fight their way through piles of trash that just filled the entire place. And Sure enough, they found two dead bodies. Homer had apparently been dead already about a week, and Langley wasn't found at first, but interestingly and in a cruel irony, his body was found crushed under a pile of junk which apparently the brothers had built as a collapsing booby trap meant to deter anyone who came in as an intruder. Langley was caught in his own burglar machine and crushed by it. What a tragedy. At the time of their deaths, it was said the brothers were worth at least $100,000. Now, this is 1947, so you can figure relative values, and that was a pretty substantial piece of money they, they had available, but they rarely had accessed any of their bank account. They had assets more than sufficient for their needs, living in a fine old home but they chose to live in self-imposed isolation and deprivation and squalor surrounded by trash, neglecting the resources that would have been theirs to enjoy. I suggest there can be and are some Christians who embrace salvation in Jesus Christ, their risen Lord, and yet their relationship to the resources available to them, the spiritual resources of knowing the Word of God and and being part of the Church of God and taking hold of the things that first Peter one four calls an inheritance that cannot be defiled that is kept in heaven for you, these people choose hardly to avail themselves of those things, and instead, neglecting the Word of God, they scour the wreckage of worldly wisdom and scraps of knowledge that mankind would give or their own practical common sense they would might call it that really is worthless knowledge in place of the priceless truths that God makes available in His Word. Last week we talked about Bible inerrancy, a difficult subject. Many of you know that one who led the way on that particular truth and organizing councils of scholars and helping to achieve written statements and definitions about inerrancy was Dr. James Boyce of Philadelphia. In the late 70s and 80s in particular, that Council on Biblical Inerrancy met and did wonderful work, and having felt that they had achieved the statements that they wanted to make, they disbanded the Council. But near the end of his life, I heard Jim Boyce say, and he said in writing as well, that not that inerrancy was now unimportant, it was still very important, but he said, you know, I feel like there's another issue moving to the forefront, and he said that issue is the sufficiency of the Word of God. Do we really regard what God has given us in His Word as the primary resource of truth, or do we think we have to bring other things of this world alongside it to make it somehow more effective? Is the Bible as it stands alone our prime, sufficient, and complete resource? Or do we have to come in, for example, in worship and instead of going to the Bible to find out how to worship, do we, do we adopt the ways of the world and say what we need is to learn from the theatrical people and the entertainment performers? Or will we replace counseling that is based on the view of man from the Bible that is truly biblical counseling with humanistic psychology and psychiatry saying, well, man knows better about these things. We might be people who would claim that we say the Bible is authoritative, it's inerrant, and yet in the way we behave, we really set it aside. And we say, well, something else is better or at least must be brought alongside the Bible to meet people's needs today. Well, let me begin my first point with a definition of this topic. What do we mean when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture? Now, I read for you from 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17. Very familiar verse. We looked at it a number of weeks ago when we were talking about inspiration because it makes that statement about all Scripture is breathed out by God. But I didn't emphasize on that previous occasion the the rest of its meaning that's there, and I hope you might think about that today, when it says it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness— That the Christian person may be complete, complete, equipped for every good work. Do we really understand the wonderful, amazing resource that we have? You know, one of the great dangers is that the Bible just becomes so familiar that you, you no longer appreciate as you read it and memorize it or speak about it or study it how fantastic it really is. Like other ministers, I have hundreds of books, and we ministers often joke about it. it's, a, it's a disease you catch when you're ordained to the ministry. All these great books are there, reference works, Bible commentaries, books on counseling, theology, church history, and most pastors have hundreds of them. But if someone said to me, quick, Rogers, you're needed in New Guinea, and we're going to put you on a plane for New Guinea and… Uh, Under the circumstances, uh, you're going to have a ministry there of a month's time and you can't take a lot with you. You can take a carry-on bag and so you're going to have to decide what books go and what you can fit in a carry-on bag. Well, in one way that would be a big challenge, but in another way it wouldn't be a challenge at all because the one book, of course, would be the Bible. The incomparable, crucial tool without which we cannot teach or preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we have that one tool, we really can, if we're driven to it, dispense with all other writings, all other books of wisdom that indeed have helpful things in them. But they are not the incomparable truth of God in the way the Scripture is. And then I also read for you from 2 Peter 1.3 a wonderful promise in which Peter told his hearers this, God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have a completeness in what God has called us to as Christian people. We have a complete knowledge in the word of God, not, not a fragmentary. Yes, there are things that we're not told that we wonder about. Wouldn't we like to know more of what exactly it is, the tantalizing questions of what is the experience like between our death on this earth and the day of resurrection when we receive a resurrection body? What What is that in-betweenness when we are living souls before God? That's so strange. I'd like to know more. Bible, please tell me more. God chose not to tell us very much about that, but He told us enough, enough to put our hope in Him, enough to trust that he's in charge of that. 2 Peter 1.4 adds to what I read there, saying God has given us His very great precious promises so that through them we would participate in the divine nature. Think about that. It's saying that by knowing Scripture, we actually have God by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us And we are actually those who can say Christ in me and I in Christ. The nature of God takes up our pulse beat or really our pulse beat becomes the pulse of God and the passions of God become mine through the Bible and its promises, communicating the mind of God. Remember that text that said a week or two ago, we have the mind of Christ through the Scripture. So there really can't be anyone who can claim whether they're a brand new Christian, a young person, 8 years old, 10 years old, or a Christian walking with the Lord for many decades who's been through much study. No one can say, I'm incomplete, I'm deficient, I don't have what I need to be a Christian. These texts say otherwise. Everything you need is given you as you have the revelation of God in the precious promises of Scripture. So there's this sense of sufficiency. Yes, we need to keep on learning, and we're going to mature, and we're going to know truth better as we go on in Christ. But from the start, we start out with everything we need. We don't need a second blessing that some talk about. We don't need a Mystical secret knowledge. We don't have to speak in other languages and have someone translate. Those were signs for the book of Acts that are not for today. We don't need an ecstatic prophetic utterance that would put us on some higher plane of Christian life. We have everything we need here in God's Word. We often mention the documents that came out of the Puritan period after the Reformation, or really during the Reformation. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, of course, is something we look to as a human formulation of, made by 150 men working together in London over a period of years in the 1640s. Here's what they said on this subject of the sufficiency of Scripture. Quote, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. And so unto this, nothing at any time needs to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. There are churches that say, oh, yes, we believe the Scriptures like you Reformed Protestants do, but we also think the traditions of men, i.e., the councils, the church councils and the pronouncements of the bishops and the pope, that they stand alongside on an equal level. We say, no, no. We're complete if we have this. This is the sufficient truth. It does not mean every knowledge of every item in the world is contained here, but it means everything we need to know and worship our God and Savior is here. If you want to know the rules of baseball or the chemistry behind your DNA or how to program a computer or repair a transmission or speak Mandarin Chinese, you need to read something else. You need to go to another source of human knowledge. No one's telling you that is here. But everything we need for life and godliness to know God is here. That's affirmed again by Another document of the Puritans, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question three, we used this in worship just a week or two ago. The question is, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The answer given is this. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of men. Now, on those subjects, what, what we are to believe concerning God and what duties God requires, we would say… The Scriptures are exhaustive and sufficient, and there's no other resource that we put beside them to learn about those exclusive topics. Sufficiency means God has told us what we need, everything we need to know Him and enjoy eternal life in Christ. Well, for my second point today, my second point has three parts, but there's no third point, so this is one long point with three parts. I want to talk about some practical applications of this doctrine of the Bible's sufficiency. And certainly one point is that we have everything we need in the Bible for salvation in Christ. No one can tell us, well, I wasn't able to come to Christ because I didn't have a sufficient knowledge. Well, if you had a Bible, you did have the sufficient knowledge. Now and then I'll talk to somebody from outside our congregation, maybe a new visitor, maybe someone who's just begun to have familiarity here and they say well uh, I, some people have been bold enough to make these kind of comments to me they say you know I, I worry about your church in one way it doesn't seem like you're very evangelistic uh, and I say well tell me more what do you, I try not to be offensive I want to hear what they're thinking and I say what do you mean exactly explain that to me and I say well you know the church I went to there's a there's an altar call at the end of every service and People are supposed to come and come to the front and indicate to everyone that they've made a decision for Christ and maybe they come for prayer or counsel. And you don't do that. And so I don't think you're very evangelistic. Or you don't have a series of revival meetings, or a week of meetings with a special speaker who really hammers the pulpit and and you know, a little hellfire and brimstone to stir people up. You need to be more evangelistic. Well, 1 Peter 1.23 gets at the heart of the situation when it says, You have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. That's telling me that evangelism is not founded on human special arrangements or human special program uh, items in the service. It's founded on the Word of God itself doing its mysterious and wonderful work By the Holy Spirit as it is preached regularly. Many people who would make those kind of criticisms and say, well, I don't see the outward signs of what I call evangelism happening in your church are looking back to the 19th century and a man named Charles Finney, who isn't that well known today, but Charles Finney really invented most of the apparatus of what some people call evangelism today and the things that they think there's no evangelism without these, this apparatus. Finney came along, starting out as a Presbyterian minister, ending up absolutely despising what we believe and saying the Westminster Confession was bunk and worthless. But Finney wanted revival, 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 and he said, look, he was a smart guy. He said, we can organize this thing and we can put it down into a set of principles that if you will do these things, you will have revival and I will guarantee you will have what he would call conversions. He made it into almost like a magician pulling a rabbit out of the hat. You want evangelism? Do these things. And he basically invented the altar call, by the way. It really wasn't that well-known in uh, Christianity before the early 19th century. And he said, you know, here's how you put on a revival. Here's how you get souls to respond. You, You work them up in this state, and you get them there, and then you say, come on, down the aisle, come to Jesus. And Finney said, that's all revival takes. Well, I read in Romans 10.8 that Paul said, look, we're not about just sponsoring spectacular things. He said, we're not telling you to look for Jesus' strange image he gave there, leaping out of heaven or leaping out of hell. He said, the word, that is the gospel, is near to you. It's in your mouth and your heart, and if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. First, uh, Second Timothy 3.15 says the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation. They're able to convert you. Don't deny their power. Don't come in with a whole bag of human tricks and say, here's what saves souls. Let the word of God do its convicting, converting work, which it does when the scripture is preached faithfully. Romans ten seventeen says faith comes by hearing the gospel message and hearing comes by the word of God. Conversions come from the preached word of God. I guarantee you they do, and we indeed see them in this church. Maybe you don't all see them because we're not saying, okay, new convert, raise a flag and wave it so everybody can see what happened to you. But God converts by the preaching of his word, I guarantee you. A second thing about the sufficiency of Scripture is not only evangelism, but what we call sanctification, the Christian life. And I believe the Scripture is telling us that we have a sufficiency of all that we need for the Christian life in the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are new creations in Christ. What does a new creation need? They need to be fed, they need to be instructed, they need to be guided, and here Second Peter is saying God has granted all the things that we need pertaining to this Christian life and a life of godliness. There are a lot of obvious things, the Ten Commandments. Certainly, a Christian life will observe the commandments and strive to be faithful to them, be faithful to your wife or your husband, or tell the truth, and so on. Some are very obvious things that we need to do. Some are not so obvious. Some involve learning principles and then refining that principle or deducing from it how to apply it to a very specific situation. You know, when does life in the womb begin? Well, I think the Bible definitely, without any question whatsoever, implies that it begins at conception. But there aren't any billboards that say that. We have to take principles and, and apply them to learn these things and follow these kinds of things. Romans 12.1 says, A task of sanctification is this, not conforming any longer to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you will test and approve God's good and pleasing and perfect will as you live the Christian life. Here's your textbook. And you don't need five others to supplement. Sure, there are good books that will help you in your Christian life. I'll give you a long list if you want but here's the book you really need and where most of your concentration has to be. Well, there's a third application of the Bible's sufficiency, and I close with it today. And it's the area of social or societal transformation. Certainly we're concerned about this in a contentious uh, presidential election year. How can we see our society reformed, renewed, Reestablished in the things that have been lost morally and in the areas of basic freedoms. And some would say, and some among our evangelical friends have decided, well, the answer is just get the right person elected. Just get the right party in power. Well, certainly voting's important. We're not going to say it's not important. But there's something that we've lost that I can only know how to call public virtue. It does not come at the ballot box. It does not come by having the most wonderful, evangelical, faithful, just, gifted president of the United States. It comes through the lives of every individual citizen of our nation. We have lost a vision and the reality of public virtue. Public virtue is something that comes as one citizen after another citizen, until it's at least a strong minority within the populace, see the work of the Holy Spirit shaping their lives, their character, their words, their decisions in public life, whether that's on the school board or the PTA or the community organization or just relating to neighbors, shaped by and remade in the image of Jesus Christ. And this is something that can happen regardless of who's in political office, although, of course, we would love to see those in political office being shaped with public virtue. Nevertheless, if there is at least a strong minority, it doesn't even have to be a 51% majority, a strong minority in any community that has their hearts changed from within in the image of Jesus Christ according to the Scripture is a powerful force that shapes society, it's a powerful force that can conquer almost any obstacle. I give you this brief story of dramatic proof, perhaps one of the most dramatic instances I know of in all of history as a student of history. It happened in the city of Geneva, Switzerland, hundreds of years ago, the days of John Calvin. You know, you you might think, some of you probably visited Geneva, I have not, but I hear it's a beautiful city, a clean city, We think of Geneva as a great banking and business center, the Center for World Peace Conferences and so on. I think NATO is based there in Geneva, if I'm not mistaken. It's a city we think of as kind of a clean, respectable leader of Europe. I can tell you it was not always that way. In the days before Calvin came there, Geneva was known as an infamous city full of A populace that would riot at the drop of a hat. Gambling was big. Prostitution was big. Drunkenness was everywhere. The city wasn't even clean. It was riddled with disease. There was no hospital in the city. The Geneva City Council would meet and they'd try to pass laws and legislate the the city to be a better place. But it seemed like the more laws they made, the worse the place became. Now, this is true. You can go check this out. Calvin came, was called there as pastor of St. Peter's Church in Geneva in 1536. He arrived, and several Reformed companions were his helpers and started to teach and preach, not just on a Sunday morning, but Sunday evening, Thursday night, several other times, mornings of the week, he would be preaching and teaching. Well, I'd like to tell you that right away, things just changed. They didn't. People threw rotten food at Calvin in the streets. They hated what this preacher was having to say. They didn't want him. They called him names. They, they said all kinds of blasphemous things about him. And at the end of two years, the council was not getting along with him, and they said, Calvin, I think you better leave. And he left. He went to Strasbourg where he taught and wrote and studied and thought, well, this is where God wants me. But in two years, things got so desperate in Geneva, the city council said, Calvin, please come back. We will support you. Please come back. And against his own better judgment, Calvin was happy where he was in Strasbourg. He said, I don't need that place. But he went back. As a matter of fact, it's said that he, he preached the first Sunday he was back on the next verse in the letters of Paul to Timothy that he had preached on where he had stopped two years before. And he started preaching the Word of God again, day in, day out, Several times a week, and slowly some people got converted. And some city leaders got converted. And some of his notable critics got converted. And a widening circle of people got converted. And and they said, You know what? Uh, The scripture convicts us. We need to clean up this city. We need to clean up the streets. They're riddled with disease. We need to build a hospital. We need to build an academy, which was a model school for that period. We need poor houses. We need better jobs. We need to help our widows and and orphans build orphanages. And the circle widened of those who were affected by a preacher whose only weapon was the Word of God. And Geneva, over a period of 20 years or more, dramatically changed. It was a healthier place. It was a thriftier place. The textile industry emerged. The banking Industry emerged for much of Europe there. People had jobs. They respected one another. They trusted one another. They were thrifty. It was a tremendous change, and it was a change that began on the root of conversions because of the Word of God. A moral, social renovation swept through that place like it swept through Holland, Germany, Scotland, England, Wales, Every place that the Reformation truth flourished, they flourished economically, they flourished in health, in hospitals, in public works, in everything you can think of. And all of that change crossed the ocean and came to colonial America, folks. It is not a coincidence that those countries who were the cradles of democracy and personal liberty were the places where biblical principles brought public virtue into the lives of changed men and women who influenced the social life around them. And it is the forsaking of those biblical principles that have reduced our beloved America to become the sinkhole of social despair that we have today. And if you don't think it's a sinkhole, I'll gladly debate with you. From where I'm looking, it's a sinkhole. The revolutionary transforming power of god's all sufficient word is the fountainhead of public virtue it doesn't only save the soul it changes the human being and the family and our whole environment and once we give up on the commands and precepts and promises of god in our country that even a large minority would uphold that would make a difference we give up on them and we have spiritual freefall And then you cannot say that it's just electing the right person who's going to turn it all around. It is not going to happen. Study the American Revolution. Ask yourself sometime why a ragtag, mostly unpaid army of men under George Washington, who were underfed, undersupplied, some of whom had no shoes to wear in the snows of Valley Forge, how was that army able to defeat the most splendid, best-trained, and best-equipped army and navy on the planet to win their freedom. I don't know if you understand that the American Revolution was nothing less than a political and military miracle. But it happened because at least a majority of the leaders of this country, not everyone, but a majority, saw that their lives were lived under the sovereignty of Almighty God and His providence over them, and they saw themselves as children of God under the name of Jesus Christ. And sometimes today I have to ask, does the nominal church of our land understand this, or do we just think it's a matter of uniting around the right party and the right candidate? Scripture has not failed America. America has failed to keep Scripture and to see public virtue as a result. God's solution to every single crisis we face begins with each one of us, you and myself, courageously bowing before Jesus Christ and living a new life in him, and by that, boldly seeking to conform with God's sufficient, all-sufficient word of truth. Maybe you're the pessimist, which I'm tempted to be, who says it's too far gone. We can't change it now. I do not believe it. I do not believe it. If God changes his minority within the nation to let us see and grasp public virtue according to its all-sufficient source, it can come again. But it will come from here not from some political savior. Thanks be to God. Father, humble us under your word. We see the powerful things your word has done in the past. People of faith, describing their freedoms and standing up for them, did amazing things that we can't explain. Do this again. Start it in us that our townships and our school systems and our county government and our state government and our congressmen and women, our senators, our governors would take hold of public virtue as they live out the Scripture. You would change this land, oh God. We pray to see it. Let us not stop asking for it. May we see it again in our day may Christ our Lord be glorified. Amen.